and the murders, I took full advantage of them in every way I could. I painted a picture with them. I drew lines with them. I used their bodies in all kinds of directions. I hung a for sale sign up over the body of Sharon Tate. And I said, I will take advantage of everything I can to save my world. Generation X Paranormal. The 54 year anniversary. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back. Um, this episode, if you're if you clicked on it, you know what it's about. Um, it's a bit of a difficult one. You know, it's not often that we go through some of these subjects and, and say, well, you know, that really set, left a real unsettled feeling. Well, this one did. I, I actually got physically ill just looking at some of the photographs and just hearing this gargantuan idiot talk, um, Manson himself. Um, but anyway, nonetheless, we'll get started. Of course, this, uh, this episode has to deal with the, uh, the Manson murders. Um, just kind of kicking it off. Manson was a man from a broken home who grew up committing crimes. At age nine, he set his school on fire. He also got in trouble from truancy and petty theft. He was sent to reform school and was allegedly raped by other students and was beaten. He was in and out of several schools. He was given an aptitude test that determined that he was illiterate, but had an above average IQ of 109 and he was deemed aggressively antisocial. On a psychiatrist's recommendation, he was sent to a minimum security institution, but was caught raping and molesting other boys. Man, what a, what a great character that guy is. After this, he was in and out of prisons for multiple crimes. Uh, Manson moved to the Haight-Ashbury District in San Francisco, and he started taking LSD and began studying the free love philosophy. He began preaching his own philosophy based on a mixture of a science fiction book, Stranger in a Strange Land, the Bible, Scientology, Dale Carnegie, and the Beatles. He established himself as a guru and borrowed some of his philosophy from the Process Church of the Final Judgment, and its seven members believed Satan would become reconciled to Jesus, and they would come together and at the end of the world judge humanity. Manson sued had his first group of followers, most of them female, and Manson allegedly taught his followers that they were the reincarnation of the original Christians and that the establishment could be characterized as the Romans. In 1968, Manson and his followers settled in Los Angeles in the Topanga Canyon area of Malibu and Venice along the coast. Manson gave his followers LSD in an attempt to reprogram their minds to submit totally to his will, and they did. He would soon have group LSD trips and take lower doses himself to keep his wits about him. The core members of the Manson following eventually included Charles Tex Watson, a musician and former actor, Bobby Biosolet, a former musician and pornographic actor, Bruner, Susan Atkins, Patricia Kringwinkle, and Leslie Van Houten. On April 6, 1968, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys was driving through Malibu when he noticed two female hitchhikers, Patricia Krenwill and Ella Jo Bailey, which I thought reminded us a lot of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that whole Brad Pitt thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he picked them up and dropped them off at their destination. On April 11th, Wilson noticed the same two girls hitchhiking again, and this time he took them to his home at uh, 14400 Sunset Boulevard. He recalled that he told the girls about, about our involvement with the Maharaji, is what he said. And they told him they had a guru as well, and his name was Charlie, Charlie Manson, who recently come out of jail after 12 years. Wilson then went into recording session and returned later that night. He was met in the driveway by Manson, 
And when Wilson walked into his home, about a dozen people were occupying the premises, and most of them, young women. Wilson was initially fascinated by Manson and his followers, referring to him as the Wizard in Rave Magazine article at the time. The two struck a friendship, and over the next few months, members of the Manson family, mostly women who were treated as servants, were housed in Wilson's residence. This arrangement persisted for about six months. Wilson introduced Manson to a few friends in the music business, including The Birds, producer Terry Melcher. Manson recorded numerous tracks, or Manson recorded numerous songs at Brian Wilson's home studio, although the recordings remain unheard to the public. Wilson eventually distanced himself from Manson and moved out of the house, leaving Manson and his followers there. Virtually all of Wilson's household possessions were stolen by the family, and the members were evicted from his home three weeks before the lease was scheduled to expire. When Manson subsequently sought further contact, he left a bullet with Wilson's housekeeper to be delivered with a threatening message. And band manager Nick Grillo said that Wilson became concerned after Manson had got into much heavier drugs or drug situation, taking tremendous amounts of acid, and Dennis wouldn't tolerate it and asked him to leave. It was difficult for Dennis because he was afraid of Charlie. Writing in his 2016 memoir, Mike Love recalled Wilson saying that he had witnessed Manson shooting a black man in half with an M16 rifle and hiding his body in a well. Melcher said that Wilson had been aware that the family were killing people and had been so freaked out he just didn't want to live anymore. He was afraid and he thought he should have gone to the authorities, but he didn't. And the rest of it happened. Manson established a base for the family at Spawn Ranch in August of 1968 after Wilson's landlord evicted him. It had been a television and movie set for westerns, but the building had deteriorated by the late 1960s. The ranch then derived revenue primarily from selling horseback rides. Female family members did chores around the ranch and occasionally had sex on the Manson's orders with a nearly blind 80-year-old owner, George Spawn, which I'm sure that was just a lovely experience for everyone. The women also acted as guides for him. In exchange, Spawn allowed the Manson family and his group to live at the ranch for free. Manson became fixated on the idea of an imminent apocalypse race war between America's black population and the white population. He told his family that all the black people in America would rise up and kill all the white people except for Manson and his family. That black people were not intelligent enough on their own and would need a white man to lead them and they would serve Manson as their master. Manson adopted the term Helter Skelter, taken from a song from the Beatles' White Album, which, re- which he thought referred to the upcoming war. On March 23, 1969, Manson went to the house of 150 Cielo Drive, which he thought was Melcher's residence. What Manson didn't know was that Melcher had moved and film director Roman Polanski and his wife Sharon Tate had moved into the home. As he approached, a photographer who was taking pictures of Sharon Tate told Manson he didn't know where Melcher was and this was a Polanski residence. Manson left the home, but he felt like he was being lied to by the establishment. So that's kind of the background, I guess, for the, for the most part of what, what we're looking at. Um, I think now now is about as good time as any to kind of focus a little bit on the, on the crime itself. Crimes. Crimes. Uh, Multiple crimes. Yes. Yes. Let's start with the first one that we're aware of. Tex Watson, which was one of the family members, became involved in drug dealing, and he robbed a 22-year-old drug dealer named Bernard Lotsapapa Crow. And that's I a, wish I was making that That's that a Lotsapapa. <laughs> <laughs> Crow allegedly responded with a threat to kill everyone at Spawn Ranch, so of course Manson shot him. On July 1st of 1969, at Manson's Hollywood apartment, he believed that Crow was a member of the Black Panthers and expected retaliation from them. He turned Spawn Ranch into a defensive camp, establishing night patrols by armed guards. Manson brought in members of the Straight Satan's Motorcycle Club to act as security. Jeez. So he was building himself a little fortress. 
messed up his Black Panther party. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, on to the next. Yeah. There was a man, 34-year-old Gary Allen Hinman, who was a music teacher and a graduate student at UCLA. At some point in the 60s, he befriended members of the Manson family, allowing some to occasionally stay at his home. Manson believed Hinman was wealthy. He sent family members Bobby Buselet, Mary Bruner, and Atkins, Susan Atkins, to Hinman's home on July 25, 1969, to convince him to join the family and turn over the assets Manson thought Hinman had inherited. The three held Hinman hostage for two days as he denied having any money. During this time, Manson arrived with a sword and slashed his face and ear. After that, Buselet stabbed Hinman to death, allegedly on Manson's instruction. Allegedly, it probably equals. Yeah. Definitely. Right. Before leaving the Topanga Canyon residence, Buselet or one of the women used Hinman's blood to write political piggy on the wall and to draw a panther paw, a black panther symbol. Buselet was arrested on August 6, 1969, after he was caught driving Hinman's car. Police found the murder weapon in the tire well. Um, Not so bright. No, I mean... Of course, they're all up on on drugs. Well, I mean, sure, but I mean... You don't, uh, drive, you don't commit the murder, drive his car, and then hide the weapon. That, the that's a heck of a drug to make you that dumb. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, they're pretty significant bad ones. Yeah. Here's the one we all know, or most of us know, right. unfortunately. On the night of August 8th, 1969, Tex Watson took Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel to 10050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon, Los Angeles, California. Watson later claimed that Manson had instructed him to go to the house and totally destroy everyone in it, and to do it as gruesome as you can. Manson told the women to do as Watson instructed them. They arrived just past midnight, and Watson climbed a telephone pole near the entrance gate and cut the phone line to the house. They backed their car to the bottom of the hill and walked up to the house. Headlights approached them from within the property, and Watson ordered the women to lie in the bushes. He stepped out and ordered the approaching driver to halt. Stephen Parent had been visiting the property's caretaker, William Gerritsen, who lived in the guest house. Watson leveled a 22 caliber revolver at Parent, who begged him not to hurt him, claiming that he would not say anything. Watson lunged at Parent with a knife, giving him a defensive slash wound on the palm of his hand that severed tendons and tore the boy's watch off of his wrist. Then he shot him four times in the chest and abdomen, killing him in the front seat of his white 1965 AMC Ambassador Coupe. Watson ordered the women to help push the car up the driveway. The occupants of the house at Cielo Drive that evening were 26-year-old movie actress Sharon Marie Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, and the wife of film director Roman Polanski. Her friend and former lover, 35-year-old Jay Sebring, a noted celebrity hairstylist. Polanski's friend, 32-year-old Wojciech Frykowski, and Frakowski's 25-year-old girlfriend, Abigail Ann Folger, heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune. Also present on the property were 19-year-old William Gerritsen, the caretaker, and his friend, 18-year-old Stephen Earl Parent. Polanski was in Europe working on a film. Music producer Quincy Jones was a friend of Sebring who had planned to join him that evening but did not go. Hmm. Thankfully. Yeah. Watson next cut the screen of a window, then told Kasabian to keep watch down by the gate. She walked over to Parent's car and waited. Watson removed the screen, entered through the window, and let Atkins and Krenwinkle in through the front door. He whispered to Atkins and awoke Frakowski, who was sleeping on the living room couch. Watson kicked him in the head, and Frakowski asked him who he was and what he was doing there. In... Tex Watson's own words. We'll find out how he replied. Yeah, here we go. Looking at a completely different person as far as uh, his mentality. 
Myself, I was taking a lot of uh, methamphetamine speed, and uh, uh, my mind was really racing. Uh, uh, I was open to do things that I would not normally do if I had my right mind at the time. So he suggested, he said, uh, uh, come on up to the main ranch. And, uh, the girls were all, uh, he also picked out uh, five, four or five of the girls, I think it's four, and um, said, I want you all to go together and uh, uh, go up to Terry Melcher's uh, old house, and I want you to kill everyone in there. So you got there, and what was going on? What were the people doing when you got to the home? Well, we first went up to the fence and uh, crawled over the fence and, and uh, found a way into the home. The front door was actually open. We didn't try it, but we went in the window and, and there was a man in there uh, asleep on the couch. And uh, the first thing I did, uh, I kicked him. And uh, I told him that I was the devil and that I was there to do the devil's work. Hmm. Yeah, he was the devil, all right. On Watson's direction, Atkins found the house's three other occupants with Krenwinkel's help and forced them into the living room. Watson began to tie Tate and Sebring together by their necks with a long nylon rope which he had brought, then slung it over one of the living room ceiling's beams. Sebring protested the murderer's rough treatment of the pregnant Tate, so Watson shot him. Folger was taken momentarily back to her bedroom for her purse, and she gave the murderer $70. Watson then stabbed Sebring seven times. Frakowski's hands had been bound with a towel, but he freed himself and began struggling with Atkins, who stabbed at his legs with a knife. He fought his way out the front door and onto the porch, but Watson caught up with him, struck him over the head with the gun multiple times, stabbed him repeatedly, and shot him twice. Kasabian had heard horrifying sounds and moved toward the house from her position in the driveway. She told Atkins that someone was coming in an attempt to stop the murders. Inside the house, Folgers escaped from Krenwinkle and fled out a bedroom door to the pool area. Krenwinkle pursued her and caught her on the front lawn where she stabbed her and tackled her to the ground. Watson then helped kill her. Her assailant stabbed her a total of 28 times. Frakowski struggled across the lawn, but Watson continued to stab him, killing him. Frakowski suffered 51 stab wounds and had also been struck 13 times in the head with the butt of Watson's gun, which bent the barrel and broke off one side of the gun grip, which was recovered at the scene. Wow, that is... Uh, being a gun owner and having been around guns, that is such a tremendous amount of force. Mm-hmm. In the house, Tate pleaded to be allowed to live long enough to give birth and offered herself as a hostage in an attempt to save the life of her unborn child. But both Atkins and Watson stabbed Tate 16 times, killing her. The coroner's inquest found that Tate was still alive when she was hanged with the nylon rope, although the cause of her death was determined as a massive hemorrhage. While in Sebring's murder, it was found that he was hanged lifeless. According to Watson, Manson had told the women to leave a sign, something witchy. Mm. Atkins wrote pig on the front door in Tate's blood, Atkins claimed she did this to copycat the murder scene of Gary Hinman in order to get Manson family member Bobby Busillet out of jail, who was in custody for the murder. Busillet wrote political piggy in Hinman's blood on his wall after stabbing him to death. Basically to try to, to claim get, it wasn't him. It wasn't him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they the whole thing is they were trying to start the political race war. Right. And if they could get people to believe that it was black people doing it... <clears throat> Yeah. You know, that's how they get stuff started. Yep. I wish this was the end, no. but there are more. Yeah, I wish it was the end, too. So the four murderers, plus Manson, Leslie Van Houten, and Clem Grogan, went for a drive the following night. 
Manson was allegedly displeased with the previous night's murders, so he told Kasabian to drive to a house at 3301 Waverly Drive in the Los Feliz. Feliz? Los Feliz. Los Feliz. I don't know Spanish. <laughs> okay. I apologize. <laughs> Section of Los Angeles. Located next door to a home where Manson and family members had attended a party the previous year. It belonged to a 44-year-old supermarket executive, Lino LaBianca, and his 43-year-old wife, Rosemary LaBianca, co-owner of a dress shop. According to Atkins and Kasabian, Manson disappeared up the driveway and returned to say that he had tied up the house's occupants. Then Watson, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten went in. Watson claims in his autobiography that Manson went up alone, then returned to take him up to the house with him. Manson pointed out a sleeping man through a window, and the two entered through the unlocked back door. Watson claims Manson roused the sleeping Lino LaBianca from the couch at gunpoint and had Watson bind his hands with a leather thong. Rosemary was brought into the living room from the bedroom, and Watson covered the couple's heads with pillowcases, which he bound in place with lamp cords. Manson left, and Krenwinkel and Van Houten entered the house. Watson had complained to Manson earlier of the inadequacy of the previous night's weapons. Watson sent the women from the kitchen to the bedroom where Rosemary LaBianca had been returned, while he went to the living room and began stabbing Lino LaBianca with a chrome-plated bayonet. The first thrust went into his throat. Watson heard a scuffle in the bedroom and went in there to discover Rosemary LaBianca keeping the women at bay by swinging the lamp tied to her neck. He stabbed her several times with the bayonet, then returned to the living room and resumed attacking Lino, whom he stabbed a total of 12 times. He then carved the word war into his abdomen. Watson returned to the bedroom and found Krenwinkle stabbing Rosemary with a knife from the kitchen. Van Houten stabbed her approximately 16 times in the back and the exposed buttocks. Van Houten claimed at trial that Rosemary LaBianca was already dead during the stabbing. Evidence showed that many of the 41 stab wounds had, in fact, been inflicted post-mortem. I guess if there's any... <laughs> and yeah. here are Van Houten's words about how she felt while she was stabbing her. I remember in court I said that I felt like a uh, shark just out of control for that moment. And um, I felt as though I were using all the strength I had, and I was very surprised that when the coroner's report was given that the um, wounds were um, superficial, that they uh, didn't penetrate that deeply. Yeah, as if that was any kind of consolation. Right. Watson then cleaned off the bayonet and showered, while Krenwinkel wrote Rise and Death to Pigs on the walls, and Helter Skelter on the refrigerator door all in LaBianca's blood. She gave Lino LaBianca 14 puncture wounds with an ivory-handled two-tined carving fork, which she left jutting out of his stomach. She also planted a steak knife in his throat. Meanwhile, Manson drove the other three family members who had departed spawn with him that evening to the Venice home of the Lebanese actor Saladin Nader. Mm -hmm. Manson left them there and drove back to Spawn Ranch, leaving them and the LaBianca killers to hitchhike home. Nice guy. Yeah. According to Kasabian, Manson wanted his followers to murder Nader in his apartment, but Kasabian claims she thwarted this murder by deliberately knocking on the wrong apartment door and waking a stranger. The group abandoned the murder plan and left, but Atkins defecated in the stairwell on the way out. Jeez. Ugh. That's disgusting. It is disgusting. It just reminds me of what's her face, Johnny Depp's ex <laughs> <laughs> on the bed. <laughs> leaving a chocolate monkey, okay? Yeah. Yeah. So that's not even the last. We got we got another one. Mm. So this is the 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 part that reminds me kind of why they did the movie the way they did for right. Brad Pitt's character. Yeah. They kind of embraced a, a few. Um, people. Yeah, in took this. some liberties mm -hmm. on it. 35 year old Hollywood stuntman 
Donald Jerome Shorty Shea was murdered on August 26, 1969, more than two weeks after the Tate-LaBianca murders. When Manson told Shea, Bruce Davis, Tex Watson, and Steve Grogan to go on a ride to a nearby car parts yard on the Spawn Ranch. According to Davis, he sat in the back seat with Grogan, who then hit Shea with a pipe wrench, and Watson stabbed him. They brought Shea down a hill behind the ranch and stabbed and brutally tortured him to death. Bruce Davis recalled at his parole hearings, quote, I was in the car when Steve Grogan hit Shorty with the pipe wrench. Watson stabbed him. I was in the back seat with Grogan. They took Shorty out. They had to go down the hill to a place. I stayed in the car for quite a while, but what? Then I went down the hill later on, and that's when I cut Shorty on the shoulder with the knife. After he was, well, I don't know. I don't know if he was dead or not. He didn't bleed when I cut him on the shoulder. When I showed up, you know, he was he was incapacitated. I don't know if you asked if he was unconscious. I don't know. He may or may not have been. He didn't seem conscious. He wasn't moving or saying anything. And it started off, Manson handed me a machete as if I was supposed to. I mean, I know what he wanted. But, you know, I couldn't do that. And I, in fact, I did touch Shorty Shea with a machete on the back of his neck. Didn't break the skin. I mean, I just couldn't do it. And then I threw the knife. And he handed me a bayonet, and it. I just reached over, and I don't know which side it was on, but I cut him right about here on the shoulder, just with the tip of the blade, sort of like saying, are you satisfied, Charlie? And I turned around and walked away, and I, I was sick for about two or three days. I mean, I couldn't even think about what I, what I had done. Yeah. That's his quote. <laughs> In December of 1977, Shea's skeletal remains were discovered on a nondescript hillside near Santa Susanna Road next to Spawn Ranch. After Grogan, one of those convicted of the murder, agreed to aid authorities in the recovery of Shea's body by drawing a map to its location. According to the autopsy report, his body suffered multiple stab and chopping wounds to the chest and blunt force trauma to the head. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a nice, fine, how you doing? <clears throat> well, I guess the results would be uh, what we want to cover next um, so in total manson and his followers are convicted of nine counts of first degree murder big surprise however the lapd believes that the family could have claimed up to at least 12 more victims and most likely that's the case cliff shepherd a former lapd robbery homicide division detective said that manson repeatedly claimed to have killed many others prosecutor stephen k support supported this assertion stating I know that Manson one time told the, told one of his cellmates that he was responsible for 35 murders. <laughs> Crazy. Tate's younger sister, Deborah Tate, had also claimed that investigators are just scraping the surface when it comes to the number of Manson victims and has farther elaborated on how Manson sent her taunting map of the Panamint pan 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 range. Mm -hmm. Okay. With crosses on it that she believed were meant to represent buried bodies. This has, this has resulted in several excavations that have been undertaken at the Manson or the, at Manson's Barker ranch where he isolated the family after the murders. Ground penetrating radar has been done showing four human decomposing spots. That's uh, I mean, that's pretty much as close to getting proof as you need. Mm hmm. So, you know, those are the ones that that are easily easily identified. But I think it's important that even some of the ones that that reportedly that he reportedly done need to be mentioned. You know, because these were victims as well, and yeah. you know their families need closure. But um, and I don't know that it's been covered in any other podcast. At least I know I haven't heard it. But uh, some of the names that he is suspected of killing uh, was Nancy Warren. Uh, I'm going to imagine that's Claudia Delaney, uh, Maria Elizabeth Hobby. I know I'm probably really messing these names up. I apologize. Uh, Darren Morrill Scott, Mark Waltz, John Hout, James Sharp, Reet Jervitson, Joel Pugh, Ronald Hughes, James Willits, Lawrence Merrick, 
and Michelle Magnano. So, I mean, that right there, you know, they're just, he's just suspected of these things. Now, I mean, obviously there's got to be some kind of, some kind of thread of truth or some kind of something that kind of ties them to these. So we already know about all the ones we've just spoken at length about. And now we've got what, uh, but 10 or so that. Yeah. I mean, well, it's and just, they weren't even all in LA. They were in all different areas that he had, he had been in right. know, or his people had been in. Well, he's a serial killer. Yes. So, I mean, he is going to go, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah. So, Anyway, we thought we'd mention that because we thought that was important. Their names uh, need to be yeah, spoken as well. Their names do need to be spoken. On April 11, 2012, Manson was denied release at his 12th parole hearing, which he did not attend. Surprise. After his March 27, 1997 parole hearing, Manson refused to attend any of his later hearings. The panel at that hearing noted that Manson had a history of controlling behavior. Shocker. And mental and mental health issues, which I think that pretty much ranks true, including, get this, schizophrenia and paranoid delusional disorder and was was too great a danger to be released. Um, you think? The panel also noted that Manson had received 108 rules violations. No had no indication of remorse, no insight into the causative factors of the crimes, lacked understanding of the magnitude of the crimes, had an exceptional callous disregard for human suffering, and had no parole plans. And unceremoniously, he died November 19th of 2017 from cardiac arrest. Yay. Good riddance. Yeah. So there was a book written. um, It's called Helter Skelter, The True Story of the Manson Murders by Vincent Bigliosi, the prosecuting attorney in the Manson murders. Um, I have not read that. I, I think, have not. I think your uncle said he read that, right? Our, yeah, my uncle said he read it, and he said it was really <laughs> disturbing, yeah. obviously. I think he said something to the nature of don't read it, don't read it alone or at, at night. At night, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I don't doubt it. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to the helter-skelter thing. Yep. Because I'm sure a lot of people are curious about this. It's something that I was always curious about. Yeah. And I've listened to the song by the Beatles. And in no way, shape, or form does it seem like, obviously, oh. I never thought it did because he was insane. Yeah. However, I kind of wanted to listen to it because I'm not very familiar with that song. And I've always been so, like, what did the Beatles think about this? To know that their album was, like, his driving force behind this. And he thought he was you know, in line with the Beatles. Cause that's what he thought. He thought that the Beatles knew about this plan and he yeah. like pushing him forward. I mean, that'd be hard to deal with, right. I would think. Right. Yeah. So I found some interviews with each member of the Beatles. Oh really? And, and what they said. So these are quotes by each member of the Beatles on, on what they thought about the crime being inspired by their, their song. Helter I'm sure Skelter. They were thrilled about that. Okay. So Ringo star, Here is his quote. It was upsetting. I mean, I knew Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, and God, it was a rough time, and it stopped everyone in their tracks because suddenly all this violence came out in the midst of all this love and peace and psychedelia. It was pretty miserable, actually, and everyone got really insecure, not just us, not just the rockers, but everyone in L.A. felt, oh, God, it can happen to anybody. Thank God they caught the bugger, which is very British of him. Yeah, it's very Ringo Starish. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, George Harrison says, quote, Everybody was getting on the big Beatle bandwagon, the police and the promoters and the Lord Mayors and murderers too. The Beatles were topical and they were the main thing that was written about in the world. So everybody attached themselves to us, whether it was our fault or not. It was upsetting to be associated with something so sleazy as Charles Manson. Another thing I found offensive was that Manson suddenly portrayed the long hair, beard, and mustache kind of image, as well as that of a murderer. Up until then, the long hair and the beard were more to do with not having your hair cut and not having a shave, a case of just being scruff or something. End quote. 
The guitarist and singer was quite horrified that Manson may have used his song Piggies as a justification for the Tate LaBianca murders. Rosemary and Lino LaBianca were both stabbed to death with forks. It's probably a reference to Harrison's satirical lyrics about piggies, quote, clutching forks and knives to eat their bacon. When Vincent Bugliosi asked Harrison for permission to quote the lyrics to piggies in the book Helter Skelter, Harrison refused, and I don't blame him. No, I don't either. I think at that point you want to be kind of disassociated from the whole thing. Right, And, and I didn't know about that. That was something I learned researching all this stuff. I had no... It totally makes sense now why they use the forks. So I was like, why would they just... when They've always used knives. It didn't yeah. make sense to me. Yeah. But that makes sense. Hmm. Paul McCartney. Ah, Sir Paul. Yes. Charles Manson interpreted that Helter Skelter was something to do with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I still don't know what all that stuff is. It's from the Bible, Revelation... I haven't read it, so I wouldn't know, but he interpreted the whole thing, that we were the four horsemen, Helter Skelter, the song, and arrived at having to go out and kill everyone. It was about a playground slide. Right. I mean, you go (laughs) to the top of the slide. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. It actually mentions a slide. Yeah, I know. It's so stupid. Mm -hmm. Oh, I hated that guy. (laughs) And then in John Lennon words, which is typical for John Lennon. All that Manson stuff was built around George's song about pigs and this one helter-skelter, Paul's song about an English fairground. It has nothing to do with anything and least of all to do with me. Well, that is a very Lennon-esque. Yes, that's what I thought. It sounds... (laughs) Let's blame it on the other Beatles, not me. Boy, they did not have any internal problems in that band at all. No, No. but I thought it was, you know, important to mention that because it's one of my biggest, you know... Inquiries into into this is how they felt about this for him to use that. I yeah. mean, to write it in blood, and I mean that would be hard to deal with. I think I'd always kind of wanted to know that too, because I mean that's something that I mean is so ingrained in this story. Mm-hmm. And you know, the Beatles were so. I mean, he was right; they were everything. It was that. They were the existence of anything pop culture, yeah. music. So I had always been kind of interested in what they were, what they thought of it too. So that's mm-hmm. that's a great that's great bull. That's good. Well, we're gonna go on next to the paranormal part of this. Right. I mean, this is a mi- another one of these mixtures that we do of true crime and paranormal. We always try to put them together. Right. And this is a big one. Yeah. This is a, a very big one. Um, obviously, there's probably multiple upon multiple, but I tried to focus on the tops um, that I could I could find, and they're they're pretty big ones. Yeah. Um, so we're each gonna go back and forth here, and you can take yeah, one, I'll, and I'll take the next. Sure, I'll take the first one. So David Omen, um, and I'll go into a little bit more, but he's been on, gosh, I think every every ghost hunting show, every ghost hunting podcast. I mean, a- anybody who's research these hauntings he's he's sort of been a part of um and this is the reason why so the hills of benedict canyon david oman um he he's a hollywood producer and uh his home his home was built let me let me take a step back because i think it's important to understand what the current material status of cielo drive is yeah so the original house doesn't exist anymore. It was torn down. And I don't remember when. Um, I don't have that information, but it no longer exists. And honestly, that's probably a good thing. Yes. Um, you know, something with that kind of evil probably doesn't need to be around anymore. No. So um, at the very end of Cielo Drive is a gate. And beyond that gate is a just ginormous mansion. And I'm pretty sure the owners want nothing to do with any of this past history. And to my knowledge, they either haven't been interviewed or they don't want to be interviewed or a mixture of the both. I'm not sure. Um, but they don't really they don't really associate with a lot of this stuff. Now, on the flip side of that um, is David Oman's house. Now, in the area that was leveled, I think it was kind of split up that parcel a little bit because the original address for this Yellow Drive um, tape murders, that's no longer around. So they kind of split it up, probably split the parcel, and David Oman and his family own one piece of that parcel, 
and the owners of this ginormous mansion on the other part. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened was David Oman um, and I think his father, they built this this really nice, lavish home, uh, several stories, beautiful. Um, but it's roughly about 200 feet from the original, I think it's 150, 100, 200 feet from the original location, which I'm sure on the flip side, they're, they're obviously the same on that side. So anyway, he claims that he has seen an apparition that looks an awful lot like Jay Sebring standing at the foot of his bed. And uh, one time during dinner, I think he had a friend over, um, they're right in the middle of dinner and he, he poured a glass of wine for him and his friend. And I think he sat both glasses down or something like that. And then mm-hmm. the glass that was right in front of his friend slid over. And, um, you know, it was very, it was very shocking for, obviously for the guest. I don't think that David Amon was that, was that shocked. Um, but a paranormal investigator was brought in and a recording device. And the interesting part of that is they were doing, you know, they're conducting EVP. And during the EVP, it was very, and I've heard this, um, you can hear back on the voice recorder something say, I had big plans. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think that that is Jay Sebring voicing his, you know, his sadness for really up to that point, a life that he did not get to complete. Yes. Yeah. So... I always found that interesting because, and, and by all means, guys, go out there and and look up some of this stuff because David Oman has a ton of stuff out there, um, videos all over YouTube, videos everywhere, and there's more than just this. This is just something that we kind of touched base on, um, but yeah, he's got some great stuff, um, different EVPs, different things that he's found. So, right. So this this next one is incredibly interesting and it's something that I had never heard about before because there's multiple shows about this you know this is a, a very famous murder mm-hmm. right everybody knows who Manson is yeah. I mean they've done it over and over yeah. however so there was a home at 9820 Easton Drive in Benedict Canyon, Canyon excuse me L.A. And it belonged to a movie producer, Paul Byrne, and wife, actress Jean Harlow. And I know who that... I mean, this is during, like, 1920s, 30s, yeah. 40s time Silver time Age yes. film, I think, yeah. Um, and so Paul Byrne and Jean Harlow weren't married for very long. I mean, very short amount of time, and they were in this house. And on September 5th, 1932, Paul was found dead with a single gunshot wound to the head. Now, for a while, they made it, you know, they found the gun in his hand, the police and everything, so they suspected suicide. Sure. But then they found out later a lot of MGM people came in and, like, covered it up. Oh. You know, because they were both famous people. Um, But they think he was murdered by an ex-lover, actually, so somebody came in the house and shot him. Do you think Jean Harlow? No, no. It wasn't her. It was, like, probably jealous that he left her and got with Jean as kind of what I'm guessing. Sure. Um, so they weren't married very long. So, you know, he got killed in this house. Okay. Mm, yeah. In 1963, the house was then sold to Jay Sebring. And a year later, he started dating Sharon Tate. Yeah. Because they were, you know, they were previously involved and then That's stayed always friends. been the, I mean, not rumor. They know this for, for fact. That yes. They, yeah. Yes. So in 1970, Fate Magazine published an article titled Sharon Tate's Preview of Murder, okay, Mm. which included an interview between Tate and journalist Dick Kleiner. In the interview, Tate recalls an eerie encounter that happened one night while she was staying alone at Sebring's house. According to the story, Tate woke up in the middle of the night and saw a strange little man in her bedroom, okay, who she thinks to be this Paul Byrne, okay? Mm. Okay. She got really scared. Obviously, she ran out of the room and down the stairs where she saw a figure tied to the staircase with his or her throat slashed. Can you say that again? She ran down the stairs. She saw a figure tied to the staircase with his or her throat slashed. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's freaky. 
So obviously the article speculates that the encounter wasn't a dream and everything. And and something else that was mentioned was that she went down, you know, was downstairs and, you know, made herself a cocktail and she started picking at the wallpaper. Right. Like not thinking, I guess, because it disturbed her so much. And then she went back up to bed. And when Jay Sebring came home, he found the wallpaper picked at the wall. So it wasn't a dream of her just waking up and like imagining this. She had actually been down the stairs. She had picked at the wallpaper. So, I mean, wow. it was really, really crazy. But, you know, a lot of people think that this was a prem- premonition yeah. predicting her and Sebring's exactly death. what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, Tate's family and friends say that, oh, no, she never had that. And, you know, sure. so you don't really need know if it's completely true right but i think it's it's pretty interesting and then some people you know think that the ghost of paul Byrne came to you know warn her that this was going to happen i mean you don't know but for for her to wake up and see him and then go down the stairs and then see that that's that's scary i think i'd need a lot more than a freaking cocktail that's yeah. scary yeah i mean first of all <clears throat> obviously she had no idea or could not have been no, no. In any way, shape, or form, known what was coming. Um, no. But if that is true, and this incident did exactly happen in that way, I mean, that's really tough to to refute that that could have been very easily some kind of premonition. Well, if it, you know, if he bought it in '63 and they started dating in '64, it was probably between '64 and '65. I don't know when she married Roman Polanski, but that's only what four years yeah. until the death, their death. So it's not, I mean... Yeah, it's not it's like not we're talking 10 years down the road. Right, right. Hmm. Now, the current owner who bought the house from J.C. Brings parents since 1970 says he and his wife have never had any paranormal experiences while in the house. Um, but here's something else weird. So you got Paul Byrne getting shot in his house and then J.C. Bring getting shot and stabbed in the other house. Okay. So both their partners, which would be Jean Harlow and Sharon Tate. Okay. They're both actresses, both blonde actresses in Hollywood. Yep. They both died at 26 years old, which I think is really weird. Yeah. It's like a weird coincidence. It's a coincidence, but it's definitely... Mm -hmm. You know, everybody talks about the 27 Club, and I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but, you know, these all these great musicians that died at 27, right? Um, And you always wonder about these these real interesting coincidences. And, yeah, I would agree the likelihood of that being a coincidence is valid, but it's interesting in that same age range, like 26 to 27, somewhere in there. Yeah. That's just, it is odd. It is extremely odd. Hmm. But I I found that one... I don't know. It was really weird. I had never heard that before, that she had possibly seen something like that. I mean, and you know, if you don't remember what we said, I mean, her and Sebring were tied up together by rope and hung yeah. from the beams of the house. So from wood hanging, being yeah. cut. So she basically saw the same thing. That's so crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean. And, that, and I think one thing that I didn't really say is that the blood she saw blood like dripping onto the staircase. So like from whatever she saw, which would have been what they would have experienced because she was hemorrhaging, you know, especially being pregnant like that. He was already passed too. So it would have been just her seeing it. I mean, he, I think they, they killed him pretty quickly. Didn't they JC bring? Yeah. I think they got him right away. Anyway, it's just, yeah. That's pretty unnerving. Um, so the only other thing I think we're going to cover is Spawn Ranch itself. Now, <clears throat> Spawn Ranch burnt down. Um, I can't remember when that happened either, but it's been it's been quite a while. It, it, Spawn Ranch and its and its actual uh, buildings hasn't existed for a very long time, and that's probably good. Yeah. Because first of all, it's in disrepair when old jackass was living there anyway with his family. And, you know, this poor guy, you know, uh, George Spawn could barely keep this thing going as it was. So, you know, it was in disrepair and I think it burnt down. I think some people say it was from arson. 
And some people say it was just natural, like lightning or something like that. I mean, I'd burn it to the ground. Yeah, I mean, I would too. <laughs> I mean, to tell you the truth. But mm -hmm. anyway, uh, lots and lots of stuff out there about people going out there and visiting, paranormal research, things like that. Um, I think every single travel vlog, like Adam the Woo and and all these people have gone out there. Big Adam the Woo fan. Um, and they've they've walked this place and they go through this and they and they get these eerie feelings. Yeah. Right. And <clears throat> awfully, sorry, more often than not, you know, these guys have like K two meters and all these different you know devices. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> they were out there doing some uh, some investigation in a K2 meter. Um, I guess one of the inspectors, the inspectors, one of the uh, investigators had started going off. And if you've never seen one of these K2 meters, it's like a they shove like a I think a a quarter into it so it stays on, and then it kind of does this like uh, this metering, and it filled all the way up uh, when they brought up Shorty Shea. Yeah, and. And, and I don't know if they remember it. He's the one that part of the yeah. family that they murdered. Right. And buried him out there. So. Yeah. And I would imagine that that was such a brutal death. And violent. Yes. You Everything know. they did was brutal and violent. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me one bit if there was some sort of uh, paranormal attachment to just about everywhere these people went. Well, just the energy, the evil, violent terrible energy that all those people had out there i mean not yeah. every single one of them some of them just got caught up in this whole thing yep. but i mean just him in himself you yeah, know so. is there and i mean who knows how many other people are buried out there we don't know how mm -hmm. many people he killed and that's kind of what i i think we'd want to end on mm -hmm. is talking about <clears throat> manson obviously was a very disturbed individual extremely you know he mental health problems right mental health problems and i'm not gonna lie and, and nicole will back me on this i did not want to speak about manson on this episode which would be very hard to do um i didn't want to give him any other notoriety um than he's already had right i mean the guy is uh unfortunately is has become a a fixture in americana for for this awful thing that he did mm-hmm um, so he was obviously disturbed. He spent the majority of his life in institutions, which thank God, because if he wasn't, who knows what else this man could have done. Except he kept getting out. Yeah, except he kept getting out. Um, and I, the only remorse I have for, for Charles Manson is that maybe in the beginning, if he'd have had some parental guidance, maybe things could have been better. I don't know. I think it's possible that he was just so disturbed that it would have been difficult for, you know, for anyone. We don't know some of the, the physical capacities that could maybe have been not there because his mom, from what I understand, she was a, a prostitute and probably a drug addict. And yeah, there was a multitude of things going on. But I also feel like sometimes people are just born like evil. that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say that because I'm a big proponent of mental health and getting help right. and, you know, getting care. But I've also seen huge examples of people that have gotten all that help and they still do yeah. it. You know, they're either a psychopath or sociopath or, you know, whatever the case may be. And there's there's no cure for that, which no. I don't know if people know that or not. There's literally no medication and no cure for that except locking them up so they can't kill people. Yeah. And he is a prime example of that. For sure. I mean, he would have kept doing it no matter what. And, you know, what we said is even all those parole hearings after he had no remorse, mm -mm. didn't care. I mean, in the clip at the beginning of our episode, I mean, it's just a chilling to listen to him talk about that. He just I mean, doesn't care. Some of these interviews, guys, if you get a chance, go on YouTube with like, mm -hmm. I think he had this one with Diane Sawyer and he's done some for, I mean, there's no end to, to journalists that try to, to, to occupy the mind oh, of, yeah. of yeah. this man. And he, he was just, I mean, I'll be honest with you. He was a flipping nutball. Yeah. He was, <laughs> he was insane. But when it the comes to medical turn of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. But when it comes to some of the other perpetrators, I mean, I know recently, uh, was it Van Houten was released within the last, I think last year. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, I've got to be honest with you guys. I'd like to think that people deserve a second chance. It just it, It's very difficult for me to, to wrap my head around allowing somebody who was was a part of this out into out into humanity now i i don't want to say that van houten isn't remorseful she very well may be um and she may be at a point in her life where maybe her mental capacity is is better because they took so many drugs that Mm -hmm. i'm sure that had a lot to do with breaking her down mentally but it's difficult for me to be okay with that and um Anyway, that, that's that's how I feel about Van Houten. Uh, Tex Watson, you know, we played it. He, he did so many things. Yeah, I don't know that I'd ever be okay with him no. getting out. Um, I think that he is he is probably also a pretty, pretty disturbed individual. Well, the majority of them were. And, yeah. and that's the thing is you have that example of, yeah, they were all on drugs. They were all taking this stuff, but... Um, was it Kasabian? Is she yeah. the one that, like, wouldn't go through mm-hmm. with the murdering... She was taken just as much as everybody else and morally decided not to do it. So yeah. you've got that example as well. Like some p- people are just more weak-minded. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. I just, with something as bad as what they did, though. Right. And I think Susan Atkins has passed, right? I believe yeah. so. Yeah, I think she's the one that got the cancer. Cancer and passed, yeah, I yeah. think so. Um, so I just... and. I mean, what kind of life are they really going to live? I mean, everybody knows who they are. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where where Van Houten went, but I would imagine it's it's not an easy life for her because, Mm -mm. I mean, she's arguably one of the most recognizable people with with what happened, so. Yeah, at least keeping that same name. Yeah, oh, I'd change it. Yeah, she'd have to. She'd have to, but maybe that was part of, you know, the release. Maybe she's not allowed to, you know. Sometimes no, they don't. have these really interesting things that they're not necessarily allowed to do. Yeah, so. I don't. I don't know. There's there's one more thing I want to want to talk about just because I just feel like it's it's just a justifiable thing. Okay, and I think you know what I'm about to talk yeah, about. I think so, so we've mentioned it a couple of times, but if you have not seen Once Upon a Time <laughs> in Hollywood, yeah, it is a fantastic movie. Yeah, um, Le- Leo DiCaprio, yeah. Brad Pitt. And, um, oh, the I forget kill- her name. What's oh, uh, Margot Robbie. Robbie. Yeah. Margot Robbie. And it's a Tarantino movie. Yeah. You know, whether or not you like him or not, I mean, it, it's violent, of course. It's, it's got his twist on it. However, it's like he took the, the, the mind of everyone that it just hates what happened <laughs> and he, he makes some justification in there yeah, he does. for what happens. Yeah. And it's, it's awesome in the way he does it. And they all do a marvelous job. Of yeah. course, you know, Margot Robbie plays Sharon Tate and, you know, and then Leo, Di- Leo DiCaprio's a, a, an actor, yeah. you know, that li- lives near, you know, the neighbor basically. Yeah. And then Brad Pitt is the stunt man for Leo yeah. DiCaprio. And, um, I, w- I must say, I mean, we we live in an area, I'm not going to say exactly where it is, but <laughs> Brad Pitt is from the town that we're close to. Yep. Um, and I and watching this movie, he definitely channeled <laughs> yeah. channeled yeah. his youth to play to play the part that and I just loved it. It was like, oh man, that's this. <laughs> and I thought he did up. so much for like Lieutenant Aldo Rain from uh from Inglorious Bastard. But Not this, as much. This definitely was. This was, was definitely yeah. yeah from from his childhood. Like he definitely channeled yeah. channeled this this area and the people that we live around. But it was it was really fun, you yeah. know. Um, but you should check it out just for sure. Just for if this episode has disturbed you to feel like, man, what if this would have happened? Yeah, right. Once upon a time, if. If this could have been the outcome, it would have been been much better. It would have been perfect. What a perfect way. Yeah. Well, listen, guys, I think that pretty much wraps it up for this week. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's a much longer episode. Um, And hopefully, hopefully you guys get a better understanding. And I hope that, um, you know, some of this provides you some some background and into this absolutely terrible thing that happened. Um, But, you know, we learn things from this sort of thing. We learn that, you know, you got to be careful of what's out there. Um, and some people are really disturbed. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it just is what it is. But 
So we've started the whole video thing. If you if you guys want to leave us a comment, let us know how you're liking the whole video. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's uh, that's a wrap for t- this episode. Yep. All right. We'll see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Please check us out on Facebook at Generation X Paranormal Podcast. Also check out our website, gxparanormal.com. And if you want to reach out with any stories or anything you want to reach out to us for, uh, reach us at info at gxparanormal.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you, and have a good day.